Today, Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to felony charges for the fourth time in less than five months. Trump entered a plea of not guilty to all 13 charges against him in the Georgia case over his, his alleged attempts to overturn his 2020 election loss. The former president chose not to appear in court to make that plea, waiving his right to an arraignment. Trump's lawyers also asked the court to officially separate his trial from several of his co-defendants in that case who have requested their trials be sped up. The Trump legal team offered a now familiar argument about not having enough time to prepare for a trial in the near future. Now, today, we also got our first look at the full transcript of the former Trump chief of staff, Mark Meadows, after he took the stand for nearly four hours earlier this week. That transcript included Meadows' explanation for one of the most curious and overtly political incidents in the whole Georgia saga. After the 2020 election, Meadows made a surprise trip to a civic center in Cobb County, Georgia, where the state's ballot auditing process was taking place. Now, no one's really been able to explain what Meadows was doing there that day. But during his cross-examination on the stand, Mark Meadows told the court that he showed up to that ballot counting facility uninvited. He said no one told him to go there. He just happened to be in the Atlanta area at the time, so he thought he'd show up. You know, you're on vacation in Atlanta, you visit the Coca-Cola Museum, you take in a ride on the Ferris wheel, then you drive out to the Cobb County Civic Center and take in a nice ballot audit, a totally normal thing to do. Prosecutors also appear to have caught Mark Meadows in a lie about his involvement in the alleged plot to organize fake electors in Georgia. Quoting from the transcript, prosecutor says, did you have any role, Mr. Meadows, in coordinating the various electors in the contested states for the Trump campaign? Meadows replies, no, I did not. Prosecutor, no role at all. Meadows, the only time that I know of from the elector's point was when somebody raised the issue with me and I referred on to uh, referred it on to the campaign. Prosecutor, so you had no role for the campaign or as chief of staff in coordinating those efforts across contested states. Meadows, as chief of staff, no, I did not coordinate those efforts. Prosecutor, OK. Got that? Meadows says he had no role in the fake electors plot, none whatsoever. OK, then just a few moments later, the prosecution asks Mark Meadows to read an email that he wrote to Trump 2020 campaign staffer Jason Miller, where they discuss a memo laying out the fake electors plot. Mark Meadows then tells Jason Miller in the email, quote, we just need to have someone coordinating the electors for the states, end quote. Today, in a new filing before that same court, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis made a point of emphasizing the fact that Meadows had not been truthful while under oath. Here's what Fonnie, Meadow, uh, Fonnie Willis told the court, quote, after insisting that he did not play any role in the coordination of slates of fake electors throughout the several states, the defendant was forced to acknowledge under cross-examination that he had, in fact, given direction to a campaign official in this regard. The court has ample basis not to credit some or all of the defendant's testimony from the evidentiary hearing, end quote. Joining us now, former federal prosecutors Paul Butler and Mimi Roca. Mimi currently serves as the district attorney for the Westchester County, uh, New York. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for being with us. Mimi, let me just start with you on the Meadows stuff. 
Wow. What does that amount to? I mean, this was kind of a weird thing because it was a trial before a trial because Meadows is trying to not be part of this Georgia indictment. But he said something and then they they like everything else in this case. They pull up a document and they have him read it. And it turns out that what he just told them moments before was not true. Now, in my world, that's not true. In the legal world, that's more serious. It can be, of course, Ellie, as as you uh, are, are hinting at. Um, it, it can be prosecuted as perjury. Perjury, as I think we've discussed in the past, is a very difficult charge to bring um, because you have to really um, parse, again, as always, the intent and show uh, that he was intending to deceive and that, you know, the question was specific enough uh, that the uh, misstatement, the, the lie, uh, was material to that particular question. Um, D.A. Willis seems in her papers to be uh, asserting that it was, in fact, false. False doesn't necessarily mean perjury, believe it or not. Um, there's more to it than that. But it certainly presents a problem. And really what it shows, Ali, is the danger of, you know, Mark Meadows' strategy here of testifying um, in a pretrial setting, um, it's the same reason why we've talked about it would be problem. It will be problematic for the prosecution if there are multiple trials that end up going here, because any time a witness testifies or a defendant testifies, um, you know, people get to see a preview of, of what is going to be said at the next trial or if it's at a hearing, then what's going to be said at trial. So there's always inherent risk in taking the stand. Um, and I think that's been sort of, you know, demonstrated here by Mark Meadows. So, Paul, putting aside whether or not perjury can be proved in this instance, Fonnie Willis is using this as an argument uh, not to have Meadows case moved to federal court. What's the relevance of it one way or the other? Most of us are not used to seeing these pre-trials. I mean, it is fascinating. As Mimi said, there's evidence here. Like he, he's actually talking about stuff that's in those indictments, but it's not really the trial. Yeah, so it's not directly relevant. It's more, I think, a tactic to scare Mark Meadows that if you go to trial and have the nerve to take the stand like you did at this hearing, I am going to crush you. I am going to impeach you with things that you said on the record that were not true. In terms of the motion to remove to federal court, that's mainly a legal determination that the judge seems to think maybe there's a case to be made. The judge asked for more briefing. Under the law, if you're a federal official and you're charged with crimes and you say that what I'm charged with is based on my federal responsibilities, you don't get out of jail free, but you do get to case get to have the case move from state court to federal court. The legal questions that the judge has to ask is, are what are the things that you're accused of doing actually part of your federal responsibilities? To a lot of us, it seemed like the answer was no. First of all, Mark Meadows says, I was just helping Donald Trump. Well, the president under the Constitution has no specific responsibilities, really no responsibilities with regard to the, um, the administration of federal elections. So again, those are mainly legal decisions for the judge. This, I think, today is more just to make Mark Meadows think a little bit about either pleading and or cooperating with D.A. Willis.
And maybe I mean, we could talk for an hour about the Mark Meadows stuff. But really, the question here is, if Mark Meadows succeeds in getting his case removed to federal court, there are others uh, who also want to do that using perhaps not the same argument, but similar arguments that they had some sort of responsibility under federal law. Uh, dubious, as Paul says, though, though those claims might be, maybe Jeffrey Clark can say he was going to be the attorney general of America and he has a reason to have been doing what he was doing. But what's the consequence if any of these people succeed in getting out from under Fonnie Willis's jurisdiction and get tried in federal court? And by the way, do they get tried? Is it automatic that if they remove their case, they're still actually a federal trial? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the case would proceed in federal court as if um, it were in state court. If you remember, you know, Donald Trump actually tried to do this in New York with the, the DA um, in New York's case, and that motion uh, was denied. Um, you know, obviously, if Meadows does successfully get his case removed, that would be um, a, a precedent for others to, to try, although I still think it's very individual and fact-based analysis um, fact and law based, as as Paul says. And so one person getting it removed doesn't necessarily mean all of them because it's very specific to each person's actions. But ironically, you know, as as plenty of people are attacking this DA as being political and trying, by the way, to interfere with her independent um, and dis- independence and discretion, you know, they're there have been uh, attempts to try and cut funding to her office. There's uh, this movement to create this prosecutorial commission now in Georgia with all these new standards. So they're calling her political, and yet it is sort of the height of political interference in a DA's independence, which is um, hugely important. I mean, she is an independently elected official like me, like DAs across the country. And, you know, the removal to federal court issue is this claim that they're getting out from under this political uh, uh, prosecution. But really, the political interference here is coming in the other direction of people trying to interfere with her ability to bring cases that she's entitled to bring. Paul, let me ask you about um, the idea that under Georgia's fairly expansive RICO laws, uh, everything that is alleged in those indictments do not have to be does not have to be a crime in and of its own right if it is in uh, furtherance of the underlying conspiracy. Does it help all of these unindicted co-conspirators if they get sort of removed from being tried as part of the conspiracy? Because then a bunch of things that they did, a a particular text message or, I don't know, Mark Meadows hanging out at the Cobb County Elections Office, uh, the counting center. If they're not part of a conspiracy, perhaps they're not crimes. Yeah. So under RICO, if you participated in any way in helping the crime go down, then you're culpable, you're liable. That's why prosecutors love to charge RICO. But in this case, we're seeing all these different kinds of motions from different defendants. So people like uh, Sidney Powell and uh, Ken Cheeseboro, uh, they want speedy trials. Uh, Donald Trump wants an unspeedy trial. Other defendants want to sever the case, or as we've been discussing, move their case from state court to federal court. And Ali, what Fannie Willis loves about this is it's every defendant for him or herself. So it's not like it's Fannie Willis versus 19 defendants and 19 defense teams. 
Every person's looking out for their own interests. So two things will flow from this. One is that almost certainly some of these 19 defendants will plead guilty. The other thing is almost certainly some of these 19 defendants will implicate the former president. As we saw Mark Meadows do when he said everything that he did was directed by the former president. Now, that's not a defense for Meadows, but it sure is incriminating for Trump. And we've seen uh, little traces of that showing up uh, with some of the other people who are trying to either get their their cases moved to federal court or severed. Thanks to both of you. It's always uh, so enlightening to talk with you, talk with you both, Mimi Roca and Paul Butler. Just a reminder that all four indictments against Donald Trump and his co-defendants will be available complete and unabridged in a brand new book edited and introduced by me. The Trump Indictments comes out on September 25th. It is available to be ordered now. We've got much more to bring you tonight. Senator Bernie Sanders is here to talk about Republican efforts against American workers and what the Biden administration is doing to counter it. But first, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas finally acknowledging publicly the gifts he received from one of his billionaire Republican mega donor friends. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who sponsored a Supreme Court ethics bill, joins me next to react. Today, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas officially acknowledged that in the past year, he took three trips on a private jet owned and paid for by this man, billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow. Now, according to Justice Thomas's annual financial disclosure report, Crow also funded a trip for Thomas to upstate New York, presumably to the same private lakeside resort in the Adirondacks, Adirondacks that was captured in this now famous painting. Looks like a nice place. This is the first time in years that Justice Thomas has reported receiving any kind of hospitality from his friend Crow. This follows changes to disclosure rules this spring and public pressure after a series of bombshell investigative reports from ProPublica that detailed the lavish trips that Thomas and other justices like Samuel Alito failed to disclose in the past. Justice Thomas's lawyer defended previous omissions, saying, quote, there has been no willful ethics transgression and any prior reporting errors were strictly inadvertent, end quote. This comes as the Supreme Court justices face increased scrutiny of their financial dealings and the lack of any enforceable ethics code. Lawmakers, specifically Democrats in the Senate, think that should change. The Senate Judiciary Committee recently advanced a bill that would, among other things, give the Supreme Court 180 days to adopt and publish a code of conduct. Joining us now is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, the author of that bill. Senator Whitehouse, good to see you. Thank you for joining us this evening. I just want to start by going back about a month to something that um, Samuel Alito, Justice Alito, who has been a vocal critic of your efforts and those of people like you said in the Wall Street Journal. He said, quote, no provision in the Constitution gives them the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. Right. Them being you or anybody else who thinks it should be done. He's he's not wrong on the face of it because there are no words in the Constitution that speak about the regulation of the Supreme Court. But with that logic, nobody has the right to regulate anything. Yeah. And with that logic, you would not have a judicial conference which oversees these ethics issues and was established by Congress. And in fact, the disclosure requirements that we're still fighting with the court over were also pursuant to a law 
passed by Congress. And the recusal issues we've been concerned about with Thomas's refusal to recuse in cases in which he had a personal interest, again, go back to a law passed by Congress. And for year after year after year after year, these are not new laws. The Supreme Court has accepted those laws, abided by them. Indeed, the Chief Justice chairs the Judicial Conference. So the idea that uh, Congress has no role here is completely belied by both practice and the Supreme Court's own behavior. Let's talk about what it is that you are proposing. You've got a few key things. Um, the the uh, Supreme Court Ethics, Recusal and Transparency Act. Uh, it gives the Supreme Court 180 days to adopt and publish a code of conduct. It allows the public to submit ethics complaints for review by ran- a randomly selected panel of lower court judges. Uh, allows for more stringent rules for disclosure in gifts and travel and requires justices to explain their recusal decisions to the public. Where are you in this effort and how likely is it uh, that what you're trying to do will come to fruition? We are through the Judiciary Committee and uh, we are awaiting uh, opportunity for a floor vote in this Congress. Um, At the moment, Republicans have not been willing to participate in this effort, but we only know the very beginning of the mischief between the justices and the right wing billionaires. As more and more evidence comes out, I think a time will come where the Republicans will say, "Okay, we got to throw in the towel. We held out as long as we could, but let's look at a bill. Because even this reporting by Justice Thomas that we've just seen is still very incomplete and full of maneuver and uh, tricks by his lawyers. One of the things that may cause Republicans to come to the table, uh, there was a a Gallup poll uh, August Second, uh, that showed a record low for support in the Supreme Court among uh, American people, about 40 percent. It's it's touched uh, close to that back in 2006. Does that help your cause that that we that's just bad. That's bad for America, that 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 level of trust is so low. Well, I think what really helps our cause is how disgusted the American people are with the behavior of these justices. I mean, around the country, municipal employees, county employees, state employees, federal employees, and of course, other federal judges all operate under codes of conduct. In Rhode Island, you get three $25 lunches a year, which have to be reported. And that's it if you're a municipal official. These guys were taking $250,000 secret vacations paid for by billionaires who are known to be involved in manipulating the court. Indeed, in the picture you're showing right now, one of the chief court manipulators, Leonard Leo, is sitting there looking over at Harlan Crow and Justice Thomas. So the backdrop to this is an enormous amount of billionaire influence around the court. And this is a story that's going to continue to develop. And it is important, the point you just made, that these are people who have some connection to court business. Initially, when asked about these things, the justices either prevaricated about whether or not they they took these things or knew about them or why they did it. And then about the fact that these people potentially have business before the court. Yeah. Well, one billionaire's hedge fund actually did have business before the court. Uh, Other billionaires are the supporters of front groups. Um, that file briefs as amici curiae and insert themselves into the business of the court. And several of these billionaires are involved in the longer-term overarching 
uh, effort to capture and control the Supreme Court, to manipulate it and to turn it into a, a captured weapon for their political influence. Senator, good to see you. Thank you for joining us this night. We appreciate your time. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, Rhode Island. All right, still ahead, the right-wing effort to ban books and reframe history has reached classrooms and, look at these empty shelves, libraries across the country. How do we avoid repeating the mistakes of the past while others try to make America great again? But first, new prison sentences handed down in a seditious conspiracy case against January 6th insurrectionists. Will those sentences signal something to the anti-government far right? We'll look at that next. Two Proud Boys lieutenants who led the paramilitary group's capital breach on January 6th were sentenced today for seditious conspiracy. The longest sentence of the day went to Joe Biggs with 17 years in prison, falling far short of the 33 years the government requested. A prosecutor argued that Biggs's actions that day, including tearing down a fence between police and rioters, were acts of terrorism that qualify for a longer sentence. The judge agreed, but Biggs's lawyer offered a counterargument. The lawyer argued that the crimes Biggs committed on January 6th were, quote, overstated. He claimed that the Proud Boys engaged in, quote, quintessential political behavior, end quote, up until the time that the riot turned violent. And that, quote, to treat these men as terrorists would be, in my view, the functional equivalent of the destruction of Waco, end quote. The lawyer argued that an overly harsh sentence would be, quote, the equivalent of burning Waco down. It'll create a martyrdom syndrome that will resonate just as Waco did among conspiracy theorists in this country, end quote. Waco, by the way, the deadly siege at the compound of an anti-government cult leader 30 years ago has become a symbol of government overreach for the far right. Waco is where Donald Trump held his first 2024 campaign rally, framing himself as a victim of government overreach just before he was criminally indicted in Manhattan, he told his supporters, quote, I am your warrior. I am your justice. I am your retribution, end quote. For the anti-government and white supremacist extremists who see Waco as a rallying cry, its invocation in defense of insurrectionists is a signal. We've seen this kind of anti-government activity before, usually to preserve power for certain Americans while blocking others from participating in our democracy. And it is present again today, in 2023, interfering with our elections and our schools. More on that after this break. The show has spent the past month reporting on right-wing efforts to literally rewrite history. We've seen Florida rewrite a 1920 Election Day race massacre, uh, tainting classroom instruction to distort the truth. We reported on on how Governor Ron DeSantis' hostile takeover of the state's public liberal arts school, New College, has made the place inhospitable for students who want to learn about race and gender studies. And we reported on the implications of Texas seizing control of the Houston Independent School District, libraries, that you're looking at, repurposed into student discipline centers, the books largely removed. This is all happening as libraries across the country have been gutted. Books about race, gender, and American history have been banned. This is no coincidence. There is a right-wing battle to prevent people from learning our real history and the lessons that come with it. Joining us now is a scholar who has been a target of this effort to ban books and rewrite history. Ibram X. Kendi, Boston University professor, anti-racism activist and author of books, including How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is among 
the most banned books in school libraries across the country. Imagine that. Professor Kendi, it's a treat. This is a couple times this week you and I have had a chance uh, to talk for all the right, wrong reasons. So I appreciate you being here. I'll just harken back. A couple nights ago, we did a, a very, Alex did a big, big piece on, on new school in Florida, um, at a new college. And, and uh, there's a guy involved in that named Christopher Rufo. Some of our viewers will remember him from a few years ago. You'll remember he sits on new college's board. He has criticized you and your work as critical race theory. And in a tweet from 2021, he said he, quote, envisioned a strategy to turn the brand critical race theory toxic. Well, it'll bring it into bring it into being through writing and persuasion. He set out to do this. He's the guy who got all crazy about critical race theory. That, and and it's, to some degree, it's been effective. Indeed, it has. And, and, and to speak to actually Rufo's ridiculousness, he actually framed me as one of the fathers or founders of, of critical race theory. And, and, you know, Ali, critical race theory emerged in the late 1970s. Uh, some point to its origin in 1981 at Harvard. I wasn't born until 1982. <laughs> uh, however, this is an instance of redefining words, right? So your career has been spent on what words mean and how what people how people communicate, including your book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. This is interesting. It's an interesting Republican strategy, taking words and using them against their opponents. The if I'm rubber, you're glue argument. Uh, if you say they did something racist, they respond which is what they exactly did to you. Vivek Ramaswamy did last week. He said, no, you're the racist. You're like a KKK guy. They said that about you. Indeed. And, and one of the reasons why they're able to say that is because they actually never defined the term racism or racist. They refuse to define those terms. If you, if they were to go ahead and define racism as a, as a collection of policies that are leading to racial inequities and, and are substantiated by ideas of, of racial hierarchy, they would see that they're supporting policies that are leading to inequity. They're blaming people as opposed to policies for those inequities. So they just don't define racism. And when you don't define anything, you can call anything that. So you've spent a lot of time actually studying these matters so that you can debate them and you're prepared to debate them. Is it interesting to you that in the last few years, the concept of debating people like you, uh, the idea that somebody disagrees with you doesn't debate you. They just discount you or they insult you or they or, or they diminish you. It, it, why not debate Ibram Kendi if, if I don't agree with him? Well, I think part of the challenge is oftentimes many of these individuals aren't really walking in facts and truth. And so when you are, are seeking to speak from the evidence and, and speak from truth, and you're talking to someone else who is, who is saying that the earth is flat, who, who's saying that that water is dry, it's, it's hard to engage with them. And, and I think that's, that's been part of the challenge because even a debate is, is really going to be Two people shouting at each other, as opposed to really uh, constructively dialoguing and, and 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 figuring out which idea is the best. Let's talk a little about these structures that you you talk about or that you'd like us to discuss when we think about racism. In an unrelated matter, we we received updated financial disclosures from Justice Clarence Thomas. 
who is Justice Thurgood Marshall's successor on the Supreme Court. Uh, Given his concurring opinions in decisions like Dobbs and Students for Fair Admissions, which ended affirmative action on the basis of race, Thomas's legacy may just be one of dismantling the very liberal policies that worked to get people like Justice Thomas to the bench. And, and I think that's that's one of the, 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 the tragedies. And, and and indeed, he he largely was is, is doing his job. The only reason why he even was was appointed to the Supreme Court was because he was he was a black face who would support the attack on black people. And and unfortunately he's done that over the over the course of his his Supreme Court career. He's been well rewarded uh, for it over the course of, of, of his career. And unfortunately people who look like him have suffered as a result of his 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 Supreme Court career. When this country has made progressive strides uh, in the past, we've discussed this, there's always a backlash, like the crackdown on voting rights in Georgia after the state flipped to Democratic control in 2020, like the book bans and the education restrictions that we keep talking about. This sort of backlash does have disproportionate impact on not just minorities, but the people whose stories have not been told, the people whose efforts we're undertaking to tell these stories. Tell me what you see happening here. I think that's that's been one of the the, the, the most difficult aspects of, of of the last three years. Of you know, I didn't live through the 1960s, you know, like my like my parents did. You know, I didn't live through the 1860s like my great 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 uh, grandparents did. Uh, but I did live through 2020. I, I was able to witness uh, tens of millions of, of people in the smallest of towns and the largest of cities uh, collectively recognizing that police violence was a problem, racism was a problem, that it was tearing us apart, that people were needlessly dying because of the color of their skin. And and, and many of those people uh, shouted that Black Lives Matter. Many of those people decided that they were going to strive uh, to, to be anti-racist. And so as a result, in, instead of us coming together uh, you know, as, as, as a human community to, to abolish racism once and for all, like we did chattel slavery. Instead, the, those who wanted to conserve racism made anti-racism the problem. Yeah. Made and, Black Lives Matter the problem. Yeah. Made and those people who were demonstrating against police violence the problem. You wrote that book was published in 2019 before George Floyd. And after that, there were a lot of discussions with people who said, it's not my job to educate the public about this. But you took a different view. You had actually written a book about it. Your your view was read, read the book. Uh, we'll, we'll you know, you can maybe help sort this thing out for yourself. And still they don't want to do it. They, they that your book has been targeted for ban more than most books in this country. A book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. If you wrote a book that said How to Be a Racist, I might understand why someone would want to ban it. I would fight against them banning it, but I might understand it. You wrote a book about how to be an anti-racist. Yeah, and a book about the importance of racial equality. A, a book about the importance of, of valuing people no matter their skin color. A book about ensuring that we as as human beings share power, that we eliminate inequity and injustice, that we make sure that a, 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 a Breonna Taylor or George Floyd uh, will never be murdered in the way they, they were. 
you know, in, in, in 2020. And but unfortunately, Ali, an old white supremacist talking point is that anti-racism is, is anti-white. And, mm-hmm. and that idea goes all the way back to even Andrew Johnson, the president uh, of the United States in 1866, who vetoed the first ever Civil Rights Act, which granted black people citizenship because he said it was anti-white. It didn't have yeah. anything to do with white people. Yeah. It, it granted people who were denied citizenship, uh, you know, their rights. Ibram, good to see you again, as always. Thank you for being with us. Ibram X. Kendi is a prolific author with uh, some very important words that it is important we all read. Thank you. Professor Kendi, by the way, will be my guest on my brand new podcast where we talk about the books that keep getting banned across this country. His episode airs in October, but the first three episodes of the Velshi Band Book Club are out right now. You can scan the uh, QR code on your screen to listen wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, as the summer of strikes turns into Labor Day weekend, the Biden administration rolls out a proposal that could give millions of workers more money. We'll get reaction to the policy and the politics of all of it with Senator Bernie Sanders after this. Labor Day weekend is upon us. What a summer it has been for American labor. The summer of strikes has affected everyone from delivery workers and Amazon workers to Hollywood writers and actors. And the Biden administration is now rolling out a proposed change that could affect millions more workers. Right now, people who make less than thirty five and a half thousand dollars a year are eligible for overtime pay if they work more than 40 hours a week. The Labor Department wants to extend the threshold for eligibility for overtime to workers who make less than $55,000 a year. That would add about 3.6 million more workers to the mix. With unemployment at a decade's low rate of 3.5 percent, the Biden administration touting 13.4 million jobs created in his term thus far. It appears that things may be looking a little brighter for the average American worker. Joining us now is independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, chairman of the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. Senators, good to see you. Thank you for being with us. I, I did that set up to sort of ask you because labor and the worker seem is central to the things that you think about, about the state of the American worker right now. We are in a summer of strikes. There are a whole lot of Americans who are on the picket lines right now. There was one big strike at UPS that was averted. American Airlines has just pilots have voted uh, overwhelmingly to authorize a strike if they don't come to a deal with the airline. Where are we right now, in your opinion, with labor in America? Well, I think what's going on now, Ali, is that workers are catching on to the fact that in America, we see an unprecedented level of corporate greed in company after company. We're seeing record breaking profits. We're seeing more income and wealth inequality than we've ever seen in the history of this country. And yet today, the average American worker in real inflation accounted for dollars actually is earning less than he or she did 50 years ago. So workers are saying, you know what? Hey, maybe in this economy, we deserve a fair shake and we're going to stand up and fight for it. And I think what the Teamsters did uh, in their contract negotiations with UPS, great step forward. They stood up. They were prepared to strike. They told UPS, which is making billions of profits, you know, what, treat us like good, decent human beings. And that's what ended up happening. They won that conflict. And we've got to see that all over the country. 
And I just want to correct something I said. It's the flight attendants at uh, American Airlines who have voted to authorize strike, not the pilots. But, yeah, you're right. When I spoke to the, the, the head of the Teamsters and I said, you know, UPS is a big part of American GDP. Are you worried that a strike can have an impact on it? And he said to me straight up, he said, it is what it is. If we go on strike and a big chunk comes out of American GDP. We have to do what we have to do. Look, people are catching on that the inflation that we have gone through really had not all that much to do with the war in Ukraine or broken supply chains. It had to do with the fact that corporation after corporation, whether it's the oil industry, whether it's the food industry, whether it's those people who own large amounts of housing, raising their raising their prices and making huge amounts of money. So I think workers are organizing. They want to join unions. When they're in a union, they're fighting for a decent contract, and that's the right thing to do. And, and yet, what I would and, say to you, Ali, in terms of the campaign that's coming, we've got to ask ourselves a very simple question. How does it happen that somebody like Donald Trump, who has been impeached twice, indicted four times, is a pathological liar, and I think most Americans understand is corrupt. You know what? He's running even to Biden in the polls. Mm-hmm. What's that about? What is and that what's about? that about? To, what's that about, to my mind, is you got millions of working class people out there who say, you know, I understand Trump is a phony, but he claims at least to be standing for us. Who cares about us? And what we have got to do, what the Democrats have got to do, is begin to engage in class politics, to understand that we've been in a class war now for decades and the wrong class is winning. And they got to be clear in standing up for the working class of this country, raising the minimum wage, passing labor law legislation, making it easier for workers to join unions, reforming our health care system so that we move to a universal health care system, not of 85 million uninsured or underinsured, substantially lower the cost of prescription drugs, build the affordable housing that we need. We need to start standing up for the working class, not just the big campaign contributors and the one percent. All right. So you and I have had many talks about the universality of health care and why it's so weird that America doesn't have it. We made a, a you know, some people say a very big step, but it, in the grand scheme of things, it was a small step with the uh, prescription drug discussion that taking these 10 prescription drugs and allowing Medicare to uh, negotiate for them the same way Costco negotiates for a better price on peanut butter because they're a bulk buyer. And everybody's out there calling communism and, and socialist price fixing and all this kind of stuff. It's a little step. It's a meaningful $50 Ali, billion dollar step, but it's Ali, a little step. It's not everybody. It's just the ruling class. It's just the pharmaceutical industry that makes tens of billions of dollars in profit every single year by charging us the highest prices in the world. It's the Chamber of Commerce. It's the big corporations. Oh, my God. Imagine that. The government is actually doing something for working people to lower the cost of prescription drugs. This must be communism. This is awful and horrible. Right, 80% of the American people support Medicare negotiating prices. So it's not everybody. The vast majority of the people understand that the pharmaceutical industry is incredibly greedy. But we have got to go further. This, as you indicate, is a very tepid step forward. We're going to bring the legislation in, which does something very simple. It says, you know what? In America, we should not be paying 10 times more for the same drugs as Canada or Europeans are paying. We're going to pay the same prices. And I'm sure the industry will go crazy and put all kinds of 30-second ads on TV. 
But bottom line is, that's what the American people want. Healthcare is the same thing. Our healthcare system is totally broken. It should not be employer-based healthcare. We've got to do, as you and I have chatted about many times, what Canada, what other countries do. Healthcare is a human right, not a privilege. We should not be spending $13,000 for every man, woman, and child, while 85 million are uninsured or underinsured. I, I will say, as a guy who gets accused of being a communist a lot, how do you explain to people that that what what, you're, what this bill is about prescription drugs is causing people who wish to sell into Medicare, which is a, a major distributor of drugs, to negotiate a price, to negotiate a price, not government control of the manufacture of drugs. And if you don't want to negotiate a price, guess what? Sell it on the free market outside of Medicare. That's your choice. This is such a radical idea, Ali. It's what every other major country in the world does. Everyone. It's what that's, the Europeans do, the Canadians do. That's we are how the only country. We are the only country in the world that says to the drug company, oh, you want to charge, you know, half of the, this is really crazy stuff. Half of the new drugs now coming onto the market, you know what their treatment is? You know how much it costs? Over $200,000. It's insane. It is absolutely insane. If people can't afford it, Medicare is going to go bankrupt, or premiums are going to go soaring. So what we have got to tell the pharmaceutical industry is we want research, we want development, we want you to deal with cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, all the terrible illnesses out. But all your drugs in the world don't mean anything if people cannot afford it. The function of the pharmaceutical industry is to help cure disease, not to make billionaires even richer. Is it your sense, uh, I've only got a minute here, is it your sense that Democrats are doing enough to tell people that they're working for them? Because I heard from you a little early in this conversation no. your sense that you don't think they are. No, of course not. They're not. And that's why Trump is doing as well as he is. I don't think that the average worker out there thinks, believes with Trump, let's give more tax breaks to billionaires or agrees with Republicans who want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid education. They don't believe that. But they don't believe that the Democrats are standing up and fighting for them and taking on the corporate greed that exists out there right now. And that's what the Democrats should be doing. And if they do that, Biden's going to win this election in a landslide. Senator, good to see you as always. Thank you for spending some time with us tonight. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, we appreciate it. And that is our show for tonight. Alex is going to be back next week. You can catch me again this weekend on Velshi at 10 a.m. Saturday and Sunday. It's